Anybody there? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hey, Camille, okay, how are perfect. you? I'm well. How are you? I am pretty great. Thank you so much for putting up with me and the technical difficulties here. <laughs> so, first of all, I want to thank you for your time for doing this. And uh, if it's all right with you, do you mind if we get the ball rolling? Yeah, sure, of course. Wonderful, wonderful. So, uh, as I was reading up and trying to see where you were coming from, you are a writer memoirist, is that correct? Yes. Okay. Can you tell me a bit about why memoirs in particular? Why does that draw you in first and foremost? Mm. And then we can kind of work our way back from that. That's a really good question. So I used to write poetry. Well, I can't say used to. I still write poetry. <laughs> but I used to write poetry solely or primarily. And then... I decided, okay, let's try branching out. Let's try something else. So in undergrad, I was like, let's take a fiction class. Let's take a memoir class because I really always was drawn to memoir, but I always thought of myself as a poet primarily. And fiction was interesting. It was fun, but I'm not someone who really uh, gets really invested in making things up. But mm. the memoir class was absolutely enthralling and I enjoyed it thoroughly. But the material that I was writing was really heavy, which is why people are drawn to memoir typically. Mm. And I still thought of myself as, okay, no, I can hide in poetry to some extent. Poetry, you can write about images, you can write about feelings, you can skip to the end and you don't really have to like chart the entire narrative and put all of the ugly details. But the more that I thought about the story that I needed to tell, memoir was what served the genre that served that best. So. That's how I got there. Yeah. And I, I appreciate you saying that because I noticed, uh, this notion of hiding within, within fiction is actually something that's very potent because all of us have some burdens that we carry and things that we have to deal mm -hmm. with. But it seems that you zoned in or zeroed in, excuse me, on mm -hmm. the purpose. The biggest challenge of a writer is to actually confront their own history rather than making up some other some other grand thing and mm -hmm. i i'm curious what home was like for you and it seems that there were some difficult things in the past that maybe you were looking to explore in in memoirs can you tell me about what your childhood was like or where you're from whoa that is a very <laughs> broad question <laughs> i like to i you know if we start broad maybe we can start um, getting a bit more specific, but uh, t tell me about the beginning then. Tell me where you're from. So the beginning, this is interesting. Oh, <laughs> Jamie just went for the accidents. Okay. <laughs> so, let's do this. So, <laughs> all right. So in writing memoir, and for me specifically, the, it, the need for it, because there's a, and memoir is, it's a beautiful genre, but even under that really specific label, there are still different categories. And I'm very interested in the expose that memoir allows for. And it felt that in growing up, in growing up in Trinidad, I'm from Trinidad and Tobago, which is very beautiful, great culture. And yet we have some difficulties and more specifically, my family. Mm. So I grew up in Diego Martin, I grew up in Covin Road, and I write about that quite a lot because that is, Covin Road is infamous throughout 
Trinidad for being a very, very dangerous place. And my family has lived there for over five generations and refused to move. And so that in itself, like creates a lot of difficulty for children to have to grow there. It's a place where there's a lot of crime. There is a lot of uh, drugs. <laughs> there is a lot of danger to young girls and to women. It's a place that police are afraid to tread. And so just walking down the street poses danger. You are sexually harassed from the time that you are a child. Mm -hmm. You are <laughs> facing people taking drugs and smoking and being intoxicated and the danger of walking through that. It's a place that my family yet felt as if beyond the people there, they had a measure of prestige and they're very religious. I'm an atheist and they're very, mm. very Christian. And the way that they maintained their prestige and their nobility there was through their, I don't know, their virtue. But within that family, there's a lot of like, <clears throat> oh, there's a lot of abuse. There is a lot of ugliness. There is mm. a lot of domestic abuse. There is a lot of verbal, mental, psychological, sexual abuse, mm -hmm. and people don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. And so memoir, the reason that I write is to expose all of these things. Yeah. And that's within the wider family. And for my mother specifically, who is a character, this is who the first memoir is focusing on because mm -hmm. there is a lot to tell about this woman. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean that that is a lot indeed and I do appreciate your honesty in sharing those those thoughts with me because it helps paint a picture of what propels you, right? And what drives you forward as a as a creative and as a storyteller indeed to bring uh light to these very very serious issues that are coming from home. At what time in your life did you did you leave home? Uh -huh. <laughs> I wonder if I ever had a home, but that's another contemplation. <laughs> oh, and I, I, I love it because you're talking about things that uh, are very important to me too. This idea of where's home? What, what does home mean? If it's mm -hmm. a place that maybe at some point may have betrayed you or may have wronged you in, in some kind of, uh, you know, emotional or spiritual way. Um, can you tell me a bit about that first time that you left and how that, that made you feel? Yeah. So the first time that I left was when I was 19. So my mother left when I was 12 years old. We knew I was her, what I believed to be her oldest child mm. until I discovered later on that she had another child that she abandoned before that. Mm. And uh, so she left when I was 12. And from the period of being, well, actually 13. So we knew she was leaving when I was 12. So between 13 and 19, we worked on getting our green cards very secretly, we mm. being my two younger sisters and I. And we finally got them at 19. So that's six years. And so we left secretly. And that escape was fraught with a lot of danger because my father was furious about like acquiring our passports. And there was a lot of threat and physical wow. danger. My father is a very big person. Mm. And in my memoir, I talk about that, like yeah. having to escape that. And so, yeah, we left at 19 when that was the first time leaving. Mm. Yeah. So uh, mm -hmm. from, from that point, uh, you moved on to education and you have progressed tremendously in terms of your literary education. Can you tell me about that experience uh, going to school in, in a country like, like the U.S. And, and maybe what cultural differences you may have encountered as you 
tried to share your story or put it down on paper? Oh, you have such great questions. <laughs> I'm rambling. <laughs> I'm rambling on, but I do appreciate it because it's so early. <laughs> and I'm like, I know it's nice. <laughs> No, you're you're awesome. I just uh, I can't thank you enough for this, but uh, but please go on. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear you. So I credit my education in Trinidad first of all because I went to a very prestigious school, uh, Bishop Anstey High School, top school in Trinidad, Mm. (laughs) and it's a girls' school, and my teachers were fantastic. From the time that I started school at three years old, I have great like intellectual abilities and I had very strong teachers who were passionate and cared and pushed and exposed me to a lot of material and I think that strong foundation and that enjoyment that I had in school because I've always been a really passionate academic has allowed me to continue to succeed and then coming to the U.S. I was in New York for a long time and so I went to Hunter, Hunter College, CUNY and oh my gosh, I absolutely loved it. It took a long time to adjust, like to adjust, but Hunter is very cosmopolitan. And again, the standards are high, which <laughs> suited me quite a lot. Mm. And so I was able to make like friends that are very similar to join activist uh, clubs. And I thrived in that system. And I love CUNY. I've taught with CUNY as well. So, and I did my master's with CUNY as well. And so the adjustment was really in terms of homesickness, in terms of, I don't know, <laughs> there was like little things like, oh my God, people curse so much here. <laughs> to, <laughs> it's, it's so weird. And like the way that they would dress and the way that, I don't know, just being in New York, so dynamic, but also intimidating when you just get there. And so there was a lot of like immersion through student clubs and all of that to really find my bearings. Mm. Yeah, that that took a lot, actually. Yeah, it, it took a long time to adjust. Yeah, <laughs> no, I can imagine. But do you feel now that um, that you are closer to answering that question of home, uh, or or perhaps as you've established yourself in this uh, uh, in this country and in the literary uh, corner of the of the world that you're in, uh, do you feel like there there is more certainty? Because I I think, and I'm speaking. I don't mean to project, I guess maybe I should say this because it took me a very long time to feel like I had assimilated into this country. Mm. Um, Spanish is my first language and I came to Wyoming, the cowboy state of all places. Oh my God. And so that's always a huge question for me is, is mm. when, when do you actually look down and realize that there's something solid under you culturally, oh. <laughs> you know, oh, uh, and it's God. a huge question. Um, but I, I'm always fascinated by how different people perceive that moment. I always want to ask memorists that too, because I'm always curious. I don't know because there is this continual longing. There's this word in Portuguese, saudada, where it's mm-hmm. like you, you keep wanting to go home. And that is, that's a huge part of me. I feel as if I'm missing out on a big part of my culture. I feel estranged from being able to just walk outside and being part of the parties like carnival is about to come up and Mm. I won't be there. So there's that absolute longing for it. Yeah. Have you been back home since, uh, since you left? Yeah, I have. And when I went back, I went back to my father's house, which was very difficult. And then, so And when I went back, I nearly drowned. Oh, no. <laughs> and I, oh, oh, oh goodness. I know. 
I know. And then I ended up in the ICU. That is also, that's in the second memoir. <laughs> so, God. <laughs> it's like all of my, so you, all of my <laughs> You have lived a, a full life so far, even, and it's just the beginning. Um, it's just the beginning. Yeah. So, I've, I've figured out that I perhaps, I don't know, I'm big into signs and all of that. And there was a yeah. lot that went along with that. But I believe that... To answer the question, to be a bit more concrete, I consider Trinidad home, but not going back to that place in terms of family because that produces illness like somatically. Mm. So going back, I would not go back there, but I would go back to my country. And I consider New York my second home. Mm. So yeah. I think I have to live in that liminal space and right. consider my writing my home because that's where I feel I bring my full self. And the literary community allows for that. So I don't think I will ever have one specific place that is just, okay, this is it for me. I will always go between and I have to come to terms with that. Yeah. And that's such a beautiful sentiment, by the way. Writing is home. <laughs> what better, yeah, what, what better feeling <laughs> can one have, you know, when, when you reach for the keyboard, reach for the pen and paper mm -hmm. to feel like you are grounded and you are uh, one with yourself in a way. So speaking specifically about craft here, how does one go about being a good memoirist? Uh, whether you're mining your mm -hmm. own experience, what exactly is a good anchor for that kind of, of writing process to mine your own experience? Ooh, I speak about this with my students and I get a little bit of pushback when I tell them, but it's understandable because I remember being in a workshop with uh, Jakira Diaz. <laughs> And her saying something very similar. And I was like, what? <laughs> and <laughs> she talks about needing distance. And I completely agree with that because that has been my experience as well. I think what allows you to write is to know why you're writing. And the only way to know why you're writing is to have some measure of distance, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, whether it's like psychological distance from whatever you're writing about. And so that you gain somewhat of like, an overview and you know what is pushing you through this. It's going to be the narrative propulsion, but it's also going to be the voice that's propelling you. It's going to be, it's going to provide the arc. It's going to provide the, the way that you sculpt whatever you're doing on the page. I know that I'm writing because I have to showcase. I'm writing for my 12 year old self that was confused about having this kind of mother. And I'm writing to explain to her the way that you can trust yourself and the way that this woman is completely <laughs> like psychologically disturbed mm. and showcasing that. And so if you know the why, I think that allows you to develop every other craft element thereafter. Like you can think about your setting as being informed by that, your characterization, the way that you are, your prose, the way that you are melding your essays or because mine is a collection of essays or the overarching uh, narrative, the arc, if it's a full novel, mm. like, yeah. I think everything comes from that. So specifically with long form essays, did you, how did you arrive at that decision for, for your collection to say, this is really the, the best shape for it? Is that something that really informs itself organically or, or like a conscious decision that you say, oh, well, this is the only format that makes sense for me. Mm. It is not a decision that I consciously made. And I say this all the time, the writing has agency. I put the pen to paper and then it takes over. 
actually takes over way before that. <laughs> so <laughs> it pushes me and it tells me what it wants to be and what it wants to do. And I just have to get out of the way. And if it was up to me, I would write flash and hide everything. <laughs> and no, it's, it's, <laughs> I would because there's so much. That I'm exposing. <laughs> but it sits there and I will have one moment, like there'll be a flash, I'll be walking and I'll be like, oh, this is this specific memory. Mm -hmm. And I remember like needing to, I don't know, wearing this particular outfit, but to explain how I got to wearing that outfit and why this is so involved and why there is so much tension in this moment, mm -hmm. I have to go all the way in front of it and all the way behind it. And then that becomes like a 60 page essay for mm -hmm. you to fully understand what's going there, what's going on, but for me to fully understand what's going on as well. So yeah, the writing definitely determined that on its own. <laughs> So, uh, yeah. how's the um, how's the collection looking so far? Uh, is this mm -hmm. one that you've already you've already published, or is this something that's in the process of being of being published? Ah, uh, so this is something. This is one that I'm querying right oh, now. Okay, okay, so, yeah, yes. So, uh, and my friend told me this in one of my writing groups. This is so interesting. At first, it was like a hundred thousand. No, it was more than that actually. And she's like, "Camille, you are writing two memoirs at the same time, probably <laughs> even three. And I was like, "Oh, oh, shucks. And then when I started to put it down and like put it together and see the arc, I was like, "Oh yeah." So right now, I have the first one is eighty thousand, and I'm querying that one. And the second one that I'm like working on right now, I am up to I think thirty or forty thousand words. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Yeah, so there's that a book of story there that that you had to parse through and figure out. Okay, what makes mm -hmm. sense for this volume? And I mean, not that mm -hmm. it's going to be you know uh, Camille Part One or Camille Part Two, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, thematically, um, you felt like you had you had like two strong threads that needed to be broken yeah. up. Okay, mm -hmm. yeah. So was there something that took a long? Was that something that took a long time? to to figure out like um you know it's easy to say um well you mm -hmm. know we needed to split it up but was that something that you had difficulty with uh yes. making that decision yes i definitely did because <laughs> and i love that because it sounds easy to just say yeah i just split it up but it's <laughs> no <laughs> it was not easy because first of all if you like do all of this work you want to congratulate yourself on it and you want to be like yeah let's just get that first book out there and just make it like a hundred thousand words. And then you're like, mm, no, let's cut it down to 90,000. <laughs> and then, but it feels like everything is so, like everything is imperative for you to understand and everything is like so urgent, but that urgency lies within me and I have to pass out. Okay. It's sort of like letting go of your obsessions a little bit, or you know how they say, kill your darlings. Yeah. That is a particular darling when you want to put everything in there. And then you realize, no, this is not working for what the book wants and for what would be comprehensible, like for the, for the reader. And so that was a tough decision. Yeah. Right. So but it's the right decision. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And you mentioned your writing group and I'm curious how pivotal they were in figuring out the big parts of this, of this current memoir. Um, did, did you feel like it was fully formed? Because, you know, I know that there's some projects that come out almost fully conceived you know even if it if it's a memoir i imagine it operates kind of the same but how helpful was the group in your writing process and can you tell me a bit about how that works having that kind of writing community and support oh 
that is hmm, that's an interesting one. So I have different writing groups. So I, I attend a PWI right now, and it's been a really hostile space for me. Mm. And I was like, okay, no, I need to seek community. And so I was very intentional about going out and like attending different like memoir workshops and finding my people. And so I did that, which was really great. But because I had different groups in different places and at different stages, different people have seen different essays and they've been helpful with that. But the narrative of telling, talking about my mother, because this first one is really just focusing on the mother. And then the second one is focusing on father. Mm. This one came out like fully formed. It knew itself. It, mm-hmm. it all, it, all that it had such, such a drive of its own. Mm-hmm. And as I said, it was really just getting out of its way and just putting it down on the page. It, it, it was living in me for a long time. And so this came out fully formed. I started to, the difficulty was when I started to put in a little bit more of my father in this one. Cause I was like, well, you have to understand them in, in like in tandem with each other. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, okay, no. So, and that's where the workshop groups came in. They were like, Neil, this is diverting a little bit from the overall theme here. This is, mm-hmm. this is like taking it in a different direction. And so I had to like, that was really an informed reading and I had to agree with that. Now that's fascinating because sometimes even distance might not be enough and you do need that third party that, that mm-hmm. is a trustworthy source, right? To tell you, you, yeah. you should consider doing this. And you bring up a really good point too, about having a safe space to unfold a bit of that trauma, especially if you're using it creatively. This is something mm-hmm. that I I think is such a pivotal issue. It's such a difficult thing to talk about for, you know, I'm a, I'm a person of color, you know, I've been around white people my entire life and I don't know what a safe space is, you know, but I'm, (laughs) I'm curious how one goes about finding that and, and make, what are your boundaries and how do you set those? I think that's, that's something that intrigues me because I feel like I tolerate maybe more than I should. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> that, for you, for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Tolerance could be a good thing. My therapist yeah. and I have gone back and forth on that because I have like <laughs> nearly zero. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> but that has served me well. Um, that is such a really key point because if you're writing memoir and I've talked about, I don't know, I think I posted about this on Twitter a little bit. Mm. When you're writing memoir, it is so deeply personal, especially when you're still in the, like in the creating stage before you even start editing or like curating, you're still pouring out all of this. You can, and this is for like all BIPOC writers, you can, if you're in the wrong space, be that work can be imperiled by people stopping or people reacting to you poorly or people like heaping scorn on whatever your story is and you are speaking about something that is deeply traumatic and they're like "Mm, yeah and so that's why it's really important Mm. to be in the right space and so the way that i went i went about that because like i could be workshopping at my in my phd program but i don't i i looked for teachers that are writers of color that are and most of them have actually been Latinx. There's, I don't know, there's that Latinx Caribbean connection. We have mm. very similar stories. <laughs> and um, a lot of women, a lot of, I'm not queer, but I found like queer writers, queer teachers are a lot more open as well. A lot of 
uh, and making sure the student body comprised such. And so like Miami Book Fair was really helpful with that. Tin House Summer Workshop was helpful with that. Mm. And like other places where there is a very, very specific focus on making sure that it's a community environment and a safe space for people of color. Not just saying that, but actually like doing the work. And mm. so that has been really informative and very helpful for me. And then my other spaces, like I've just curated on my own. It's like reaching out to other people from my MFA and other people mm. I know that are writing and who who get it. People who've walked a hard road and who get it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it's fascinating too, because you, you got to remember that you do have built-in community with your your cohort of of fellow students that you were going through the trenches with. And um, mm -hmm. I, I think sometimes we may forget that. And I know I personally do quite often. <laughs> so this is <laughs> a good reminder for me as well. Uh, now you're an educator as well. Mm -hmm. You, uh, I imagine this has been something that you've done for quite a while, or are you fairly new to education? No, I've been teaching for a while, always. Mm. Yeah, okay. I've always loved it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm curious of what experiences you've had with your students that may have informed your writing or may have clarified some things for you that you maybe were in doubt before. Oh, and that is like one of the best things about writing, about <laughs> teaching rather, that it helps your own writing. And so I think, okay, so I taught a memoir class last fall. And one of the things that my students really struggled with was when I tried to break down the situation and the story. And I think by the end, they were still like, Miss Adams, what? <laughs> 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 and I had to try in all different means to be like, even though you have this emotional story to tell, you need a plot. <laughs> you need something. <laughs> you need something to make the reader read this. Like it has to be going somewhere. Yeah. And I think that was really important for me to make sure that when I'm editing my work, that that propulsion is there, that I'm not just asking the, right, the reader to stay with me through this gratuitous like reflection or or just, I don't want to say navel-gazing because that's pejorative, but... <laughs> I think that might be <laughs> like the name what? of my memoir when it comes out. Uh, <laughs> no! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm totally, totally derailing. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. But we do that, right? We wax on about like, oh, yeah. this is what I thought, and this is what I felt, and this is what that meant. But you still have to have action. And so I think that that was seeing my students struggle with that. Yeah. And knowing that when, and I read for Split Lip Magazine as well, and I love that mm. as well, when you get to see other people's work. And I see how many times people forego that. And so that makes me come back to my work and be very, very, very careful about that, making sure there's a plot on the page at all times. Yeah. That you are following something to a conclusion. Right. Absolutely. And so far, you've, you've taught me two really important things already. I mean, that element of okay. distance which is mm. which is so important and a kind of propulsion. Uh, would you say yeah. there's other elements of memoir that, that you think come to mind uh, while, while you're thinking about it? Yes. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> That's what I do. I love teaching memoir. <laughs> Let me contain it to like just a few. So another thing that you need to do is to ensure that you have the two cells on the page. Mm -hmm. And so you have to make sure. So let's say you're writing, let's say the narrator is a 10 year old. You have that 10 year old and you are 
fully situating that 10 year old on the page and so we're in the 10 year old's setting 10 year old's head we are there with them so we have the characters around that 10 year old but this is not fiction it's memoir and so it's absolutely necessary for you to be able to explain that whatever experience the 10 year old is having this is why this memory is important this is why you remember this this is what you are showcasing there and so memoir is so beautiful of a genre because you have to show and tell you have mm-hmm. to be able to step back into the adult the person at the desk and be like this is where this is what you're gleaning from this and not in a really didactic way you're not spelling it out but you're saying this is what i have learned and mm-hmm. so it allows for that like insight and you are sharing that insight because this is what readers come to memoir for so you have two selves on the page you also need to make sure that that you are distinguishing between autobiography and memoir autobiography mm. is like i was born in 1953 10th of may whatever oh that's my grandmother's birthday anyway <laughs> <laughs> and you want to plot every single incident of your life from like birth until now that is that is not what memoir is memoir is you are choosing a specific arc a specific memory a specific mm. telling a specific slant like you want to showcase i'm going to be talking about cultural assimilation or i'm going to be talking about familial estrangement or i'm going to be talking about the birth of myself as a writer whatever it is and you choose memories that align with such and that showcase such so it's not the entirety of your life and i think yeah. people can be tempted to do that yeah. and that's a, a really beautiful way to put it because I, i personally had never thought about this it's a kind of personal curation right mm-hmm. where you yeah. <laughs> you're creating your own playlist of of experience mm-hmm. or again theme or events that seem to have a through line uh, of some kind mm-hmm. but uh, that's such a beautiful way to put it and I thank you so much for that because whoever's listening and is intending to do memoir has literally mm-hmm. just gotten the the keys to a great memoir project mm-hmm. so backtracking just a little bit i'm very curious mm-hmm. about this and i ask people this a lot do you remember the works that stuck with you from childhood or things that really impacted you in terms of art or Mm-hmm. Uh, other other kind of experiences like that yes definitely and this is how i know that i'm a memoirist and i don't know why like i was <laughs> denying it at first because <laughs> as a child i would have these experiences and i'm like camille you're going to write about this and i just you know that that uh, absolute surety you know you're going to do this mm. so one of the works that stuck with me and i first read this when i was 11 or 12 years old um annie john by jamaica kincaid listen that book oh my god and i actually talked about that in my personal statement for my phd program mm. that book was the first book and i have like a very strong literary background because and so we mostly read caribbean literature and british literature not much american so mm. yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> in all of the books there was always this happy family and i was like i cannot this does not resonate i cannot mm. like I can't gel with this. And then I read Annie John and it was the first time I had ever read and it was a Caribbean person saying they had a very difficult relationship with their mother. Their mother was difficult. They mm-hmm. don't love them and they needed to flee. And I was like, "Oh my god, this was life-changing." And I have since read it so many times. Other things that really impacted me um Oh, let me see. So I talked about books I want to talk about other forms of art or the media as well. Yeah. So the first time I visited River Estate, River Estate is not far from my uh my family's home and 
we always grew up learning about enslavement in Trinidad and uh, mm. like enslaved Africans having to work the plantations and cane and all of that. But I went there and I saw the water wheel and I saw the ruins and I saw like, and I just had this really transportive moment where I felt my ancestors in that place. And mm-hmm. I felt, I felt like, and I know this sounds all woohoo-y, but I could, I could see them doing the work and I felt the pain there. And I feel as if like very strong emotions can, can stick in a place, mm-hmm. right? And it could be imprinted there. And I went there and I was like, I'm going to write about this because this is what my people endured. And so that was another place. Uh, going to museums in Trinidad and learning about uh, the indigenous people who had been genocided. Mm-hmm. And so that was another thing that like had a very strong impact on me and the music. So this is something that I don't get to talk about as much as I wish to. Mm. Growing up, my culture in Calypso, we have a very strong tradition called extempo where people are rhyming and they're battling each other and you have to make it up on the spot. Mm. And I have always been compelled by that. And so there's a lot of rhyme and a lot of rhythm in my work because I come from a very strong oral tradition. So and also Paul Kings Douglas, who's a master storyteller, and you would just listen on the radio and he would tell all of these stories just through his voice. And so I've always been moved by that. And so that's something that's always impressed me as a child as well. Yeah, that is all yeah. of this. All of this is just so fascinating and, and wonderful. I feel like the more you share about your uh, your home and mm. sort of the things that, that are already within you, there is such a feeling of home within you no. uh that it's really inspiring to me because for for people who are at a distance of of where they come from i i just can't mm-hmm. imagine a more empowering feeling or statement you know than what you just told me because to go back to a place and and mm-hmm. see the lineage right see that connection even if it's through suffering mm-hmm. can be such um it's such an emotional spiritual experience and yeah. i think that at that point you are getting to you know, something that a lot of people say, oh, that's woo-woo stuff, you know, that, mm-hmm. you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. you're reaching for magic, right? And I think that those are the things that enliven us, that make us feel mm-hmm. so at, at home, no matter where we are. And yeah. you just, you touch on that so beautifully, in particular with the music too, and how that yeah. still transmits onto your work. I mm-hmm. am very much projecting again, so I'm trying not to do that. <laughs> you're <laughs> just- completely fine. <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you know, you're making me uh, notice a lot of connections in, in my own experience. And so I, I'm just so grateful to you for that. Um, oh. Lastly, if we can just expand a little bit on mm-hmm. what kind of works somebody should consider if they're looking for Caribbean literature, um, at least, you know, some things that might clue us in a little bit more, uh, much like that piece that inspired you when you were younger. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is, yeah, because I want to teach a Caribbean lit class. If anybody from CUNY is listening, listen. <laughs> <laughs> Pass <laughs> it on. <laughs> Pass it on. Here's here's the, uh, yeah, the verification. <laughs> exactly. So I am in love with post-colonial work, but I don't want us to just focus on post-colonial. There are a lot of like contemporary Caribbean writers, so I will mix it in a little bit. Mm. So Edwidge Dantecat, like, I don't know, this, oh, can I just say how brilliant she is, how absolutely brilliant. And I met her once and she is so kind and so gracious, just absolutely sweet. And there's so much heart in her writing, like such beauty, but good Lord, the stories are hard. Mm. But if you have to read anything by Edward Chantecourt, 
The Deal Breaker and her memoir, Brother, I Am Dying. Oh, it will have you completely destroyed. But this woman is her crafts, her craft, like her craftsmanship is just amazing. Uh, Key Miller is another contemporary Caribbean writer that everybody should write, read. His mm-hmm. work is just wonderful. And he writes nonfiction and fiction as well. So you can try August Town. You can try Things I Did Not Say. And those are two beautiful pieces that you should read. Mm-hmm. Uh, Caribbean, like Trinidadian writer, Ingrid Persaud. And she writes about home quite a lot. So her first book, Love After Love, uh, titled after Derek Walcott's famous poems, famous poem one of my favorites is talking about like Indo-Trinidadians and that struggle in terms of immigration and in terms of uh, difficult familial situations and then Mm. she has another one If I Never Went Home and that's talking about repatriation to some extent and that longing we always have so those are three that we should definitely try Mm post-colonial George Lamming is absolutely fantastic Samuel Selborne Yes, Naipaul, an absolute bastard, but his writing is amazing. But read, write, read his work that's focused in Trinidad. After he left, I don't know, he lost a little bit of the mojo. Mm. So Miguel Street, A House of Mr. Biswas, amazing works. Mm. So yeah, I think uh, anything else <laughs> I want to throw in there? <laughs> book list, so. Now's the time, yeah. But hey, you know what, what we can do too is you can always send me a list if you come up with some more and I'll put them in the episode description because I think that it's mm-hmm. important to get the word out about some of these works that um, that a lot of folks you know may not see here. Um, and just to kind of extend this conversation just a little bit longer, I got one question here, a couple more, but um, this one... I'm very curious what you think our role as creatives or storytellers is in terms of uh, cultural ambassadorship, if that is such a thing. Mm. Um, Do you feel it's our job? Does it go hand in hand with being a writer or a storyteller Mm -hmm. that we must place culture front and center, especially as people of color, especially as people who may be carrying a part of history that may not be seen regularly is that something that we have to burden ourselves with or is it a joy Mm. or or do we just have to tend to that responsibility more often than others oh well that is a laden question so i'll take that burden part first Mm -hmm. i think when people of color write in terms of thinking about the white spectator then it can feel like a burden because it feels as if they're treating their own work like it's an anthropology Mm -hmm. experiment and I think that's absolutely wrong because you're not writing for the white gaze. It's like Chris Abani says, like, kick out the white editor off your shoulder. Tony Morrison talks about that as well, mm-hmm. right? No, mm-hmm. don't do that. I do think that it's not a burden. I don't, it's a joy, but it's also, it's also just inherent. You can't talk about yourself. Okay, memoir is not a diary, right? Mm-hmm. You're not just spilling, okay, this happened in my day and just bleeding your feelings. You have to give context as well. And so, I can't talk about myself in 2023 without talking about like generations past. I didn't just get here. My family didn't just turn out the way it did. I'm from Trinidad. I have to give that context. And so in grounding the work and in providing texture, like ancestry will always come in. The land will always come in. We are shaped by the geopolitical. We are shaped by the environmental, the historical, the sociological. That is part of who we are. And so, and we are shaped by the way that we see the world. And sometimes that is spiritual as well. 
And I don't like that term magical realism mm-hmm. because again, that's a very white term. What we undergo, how we see or things that happen because it's not your experience doesn't mean it's magic. It's just, this is what, this is what we live like. Yeah. This is what happens. And so I feel as if a strong memoirist, a strong writer in any genre will always bring in all of these elements naturally because you didn't just come down in the last shower. And I do think it's a joy to consider, even when you're writing about the traumatic, even when you're writing about painful inheritances, it is a joy to enrich your own mind. Like there was one piece that I did some research for because I wanted to write about how many generations? Four generations back. And so I wanted to write, no, three. Hmm. Three generations back. And so I wanted to write about my grandmother, grandmother. And I had to go to like JSTOR and go to like EBSCO and all of that, but also go to the oral and pair those two and it granted me such insight about post-colonial like conditions and so it's challenging like the narrative that we would get from like the british archives and Mm. and grounding it in the caribbean and being like this is what y'all said like oh my god look at these benevolent like planters no (laughs) this is what my people actually went through and so I, i do think there's a responsibility to tell all of this because oh okay let me give a little more because I love this topic, but okay. I don't want to like wax on. But I'll no, say please, please, please continue. This has <laughs> been, I, I just got to say, this has been so incredible and inspiring, but also supremely educational. So please go on as long as you need to. So like one of the majors that I've always, so like throughout all of my programs, BA, MFA, PhD, I've always done uh, creative writing and uh, Caribbean studies and Africana studies as well. And one of the things that I'm really like drawn to is the narratives of the enslaved. And it's not because I like reading like trauma porn and it's like, oh my God, this is Mm -hmm. what these people went through. But the fact that even under these like really disturbing conditions, people said, I'm going to tell my story. And so if they didn't tell the story, then you would have this impression of what like enslavement was like or what transport from the African continent was like. But you have to have people who are going to tell the actual truth. And I believe that the imperative is always on us to tell the truth. Because if you don't, then it's like the victor tells the story and then they write you out of history. And so I believe that if you are compelled to write, then the compulsion needs to be bigger than yourself. It can't just be about you. It has to be about all of these things that contributed to you being here. And that includes like history that isn't being told. And so you have the, you have the privilege, but you also have the responsibility of writing history. And I mean, writing in W and R, like you have to do both. Mm. That's incredible. I think this is, this has been so phenomenal and as you can see i'm picking up my jaw from the floor uh because it these i i've put you through the ringer this morning and uh given that it was so early we started with such intensity that i first of all want to thank you for oh. <laughs> for putting up with me on that. that's fine we jumped straight into the deep end we that we did great. we did i think i was just so excited to talk to you i don't know what it was but um one last question here since we're still at the beginning of the year and i don't know if you believe in uh, resolutions or having um, intentions for the year. Can you mm-hmm. share a little bit about what you're looking to do uh, for your craft this year? Ooh, ooh, huh? So this is what I actually have to think about right now. <laughs> <laughs> 
and I like that. I like when I'm basically. <laughs> what do I want to do for my craft? Um, I want to. One, I want to be in physical community with people. I think we've been virtual for so long. And I think that has been great because, I mean, obviously it benefits people who have different abilities and, you know, given COVID and all of that. But I think there's something to be gained from being in space with, with people. Like uh, last year, Summer's Tin House workshop was absolutely phenomenal. And I absolutely loved like being close to people and being able to hear them and see them and like, a workshop in that way. I also want to do a lot more reading. And yeah, I think that is something that I, that's really important to me. I actually thought about like going to the moth and all of those, but then you have to like remember and it's, it's, you have to memorize the piece. Mm-hmm. And I don't like memorizing my memoir because then it loses some of the, <laughs> like every time I read it, there's something else that I gain from it. Mm-hmm. There's something new there, but my work is very oral narrative centered. And mm. so I want to put it into that proper medium where it's enjoyed in that way. And so, yeah, that is something that I want to do. I want to read a lot more. And I also want the opportunity to teach in different spaces. Mm. That's yeah. beautiful. And I must say, uh, you should look into uh, doing some audio for it. I mean, I know it's not the same mm-hmm. as performing. I mean, if you're not fond of, of memorizing, I think it would be a great a great way to just kind of hear it uh, because it's so... Mm-hmm. It's so important to to get the the full experience, and I I think you're right that the oral experience is just something that um, is difficult to come up against. You know, I think it's difficult to mm-hmm. to match by just reading it. Um, yeah. Well, with that said, all of that, mm-hmm. I just want to thank you for your time because this is a beautiful note to end on. I want to thank you for your strength in in recollecting and putting all of these pieces together into something that will make a difference in the world and. I think that you are you're a wonderful model for folks who are looking for home, for folks who have gone through a lot of that anguish and are looking to do something with the pieces. And uh, personally, this has been a wonderful, uh, very uh, empowering episode. So I just really want to thank you for that and uh, for your time. It's been awesome. Oh, my God. Jamie, that was so moving. Thank you. That was, you know, I, I'm really touched by you saying that. <laughs> no, and this has been fun. And this is the thing is um, people tell me, um, you know, your episodes are really serious. But I, I think that like I, <laughs> I stopped recording and then I'm usually just literally just messing around. So I, I hope that if we get to talk next time. It'll be a lot lighter, <laughs> but with the introductions, <laughs> it just went off the rails. I think it was because I had too much coffee today. But <laughs> no, 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 never apologize for getting deep. Never. I mean, memoir. It always is. So. That's right. Memoirs are always deep and intense. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, and there could be joy and like depth at the same time. This was a joy talking to you. It was an absolute pleasure. I enjoyed being able to like be expressive, and your questions were phenomenal. And Thank you for the ways that you made me think newly about my work as well and for allowing me to share my perspective. This was absolutely like a, an absolute treasure. Oh, goodness. Well, that that's just wonderful to hear. And uh, hey, uh, if you got anything else you want to talk about, just let me know and maybe we can catch up later in the year or down the road anytime. Okay. That sounds good. I'll okay. <laughs> well, I'll let you have your Sunday back up. Please have a wonderful day and uh, let's hope to talk soon. You too. Okay, take care of yourself. Bye. Bye.